everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questers, Josh and Dan, I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical and tyrannical slash metallurgical, and that'll be explained in a bit or so. Uh, but if you have any questions for us, because we're going to handle some emails first, if you have any questions for us about anything you're about to hear, please contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Welcome Josh, back. You have an announcement about the Kickstarter. Yes. So the Kickstarter for the Grand <laughs> Bazaar wrapped a couple of weeks ago, and I noticed online earlier today uh, a couple of people lamenting that they had missed it. One of them was because they didn't realize that the money was collected at the end of the campaign when it closed rather than when they pledged. And so the campaign closed and they didn't actually have the money in their account at the time. And so their pledge sort of got canceled. Oops. So for them and for anybody else who missed the campaign, feel free to send an email to FASA Games, to like the, the info at FASA Games or to one of the, the company, the actual official company emails. Don't send it to me because I'll just forward it. But send it to the, the like official FASA Games email address mm -hmm. explaining what's going on because I, I don't know whether it will actually happen or not. But in the past, we have had other people sort of come in and go through just getting invoiced by PayPal and pre-ordering the stuff that they wanted. That's not strictly necessary. Everything that was available through that campaign is going to be available through our shop normally. In fact, the shipment of the Mountain Shadow plushes is going to be loaded onto a ship and start making its way across the ocean sometime in July. The only thing really that will be a wait on that is waiting for the finished product of the book itself. But all of the other stuff is, you know, will be available uh, ahead of time. But feel free to send an email to FASA Games asking if there's anything that can be worked out. And the wonderful people there will see, you know, who manage the, sh the store and stuff which is not me, will possibly be able to help you. Again, no promises. I don't know whether things have shifted a little bit in terms of how we're handling that, um, but it doesn't hurt to shoot an email just to check. So what you're saying is we'd like to work a little bit harder to get all the money. Yes. Okay. Basically, if people want to <laughs> give us money, we will not turn it away. But also there is... Not really anything that was offered through that campaign that will not be available normally. So if you don't mind waiting, once we get the stuff in hand, it will go up on our shop and you can just order it normally through that. Supplies uh, depending. Yeah, supplies depending. I mean, we're probably not going to sell out super quickly of the, the plushes, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, just something to keep in mind. Keep an eye out. Uh, as I always say, if you are not following FASA or me on various social media, or if you're not in the FASA Games Discord, those are great places to get sort of up-to-date information in terms of what's going on for Everything. releases and stuff like that. Yeah, 
Fair. All right. On to our quizzical portion of the show today before we get to the holders of trust, the Denirastus clan and their uh, goings on over there in Iopos. So we have a couple of emails to get to and Lehman uh, sent us two. I'll get to his second one in a bit or so because it's it's very poignant to the last episode or so we, we released. So first off, hey, Dan and Josh. So just to jump in, I don't back Kickstarter except for the game for which I write. Too many burns and unfulfilled things out there, even by companies that had successes. I'll look at Kickstarter to see what might be coming out, and if I like something, I'll wait to buy it. But I am loving Earth on 4th Edition so much, you made me break my no crowdfunding rule, and I ordered the Grand Bazaar, as well as tacking on the Companion and Mystic Paths books. My group, the Stormwalkers, have all made it to Journeyman tier, except our troubadour who moved into, into Illusionist. I'm getting close to being inducted into the Windmasters and have been enjoying the game world and system so much. Keep up the great work. Lehman. Thank you, Lehman. Speaking of Kickstarter, I appreciate that it is heartening to get that message from someone who I completely understand having backed numerous Kickstarters and being somewhat selective about the Kickstarters that I myself back. Yeah. You know, I, I understand the trepidation, the, the horror stories that are out there when it comes to collapsed or unfulfilled or otherwise disastrous campaigns. We nearly had one of our own back at the beginning and, and managed to kind of pull ourselves out of that and are doing what we can to try and keep a, an even keel. But the fact that you are enjoying the game so much that you broke that restriction of yours to back hours means a lot. I appreciate that. Thank you. He also sent along with that email, like a picture yes. of his group. Yes. Um, and I'll see if I can tack that on to the, uh, the Twitter feed uh, for the survival guide. Yeah. So that like people can see that picture that he sent that along. That's yeah. And a troll. So that's, that's an interesting group to hang around with without no lie, no lie at all. Uh, next up, we have one from Matthew. Uh, hello, Josh and Dan. Thank you again for doing the podcast. Even going back and listening to some, uh, some again has been a big help for me. Now on to the advice asking for this email. My local convention, Yukon, is going back in person this October. The last time it was in person, I ran the adventure Journey to Lang. I had a mix of people who have played the first edition, Earth Dawn, and two who have never heard of Earth Dawn before. Oh, I'm sorry for those two people. This year, I was thinking of running two sessions, one low level and one higher level. I was hoping to get your advice on this. I was thinking of running a Legend of Bar save for my lower level and some type of adventure in Vasgothia. Do you have any suggestions on what Legends of Bar save to use? Also, do you think using Vasgothia would be good for a higher level adventure, or would you suggest something different? So, I think using a legend, one of the Legends of Bar save adventures, is a great idea for the low level introductory one. What I have done with our local convention, which hasn't actually met in a couple of years, but the one we have up here in Maine, uh, SnowCon, normally held in January, but conditions have prevented it from happening last couple of years. As everyone knows, I had been running the Legends of Bar Save adventures basically just one a year. I would run like two sessions of it, but the same adventure. And I started with the first chapter. I started with uh, Toys in the Attic, I think is the name of it the one that kind of introduces everybody to Haven and the various adventuring companies and stuff there because the adventures are written to form an overall arc. And so that might not be a bad one to start with. 
to look at that one. I'm trying to think. The first three of those, and I don't recall the names of them off the top of my head, um, but Toys in the Attic uh, and the other two, like those first three are all kind of introductory in that they introduce slightly different aspects of the revised or updated Haven setting that is used for the Legends of Barsave. Um, the first one introduces the adventuring companies. The second one... Yeah, we have Masks of Fear, Toys in the Attic, and Lip Service. Well, no, Masks of Fear was the introductory uh, adventure that was included with the Quick Start. And that's included in the compilation because it does act as a kind of prologue. But it's not... I, I don't feel that it's enough to have as a full session in its own... Right? Well, it might be. It might be one you could you could take a look at. Um, if you don't have the collection, the collected Legends of Barsay Volume 1 uh, Haven compilation, which collects basically the first half of the Parlength Legends adventures. Yes. Um, then you can grab the uh, Quick Start, which is free at the FASA Games website and uh, also at Drive RPG, and it includes Masks of Fear as the adventure that's included in there. And you can certainly run that with any characters, not just the ones that are included in the quick start, but it is a little bit more basic and shorter, although it is in its own way, a little bit more iconically earthed on in terms of what it does to introduce people. But yeah, mass of fear toys in the attic, the next two of those lip service and separation anxiety. Any of those I think would be good as an as initial introduction just to, get a sense of, of what's going on. So yeah, you could, you could do any of those and, and that would be fine. My instinct is to say, go with the first one. And if it's like an event that's going to be run every year, then like run the next one the next year (laughs) and see if you can get people coming back to kind of have the ongoing story that's going on there. With regards to the higher circle one, running an adventure in Vasgothia is certainly an option. When I run games at Gen Con, I tend to make the pre-generated characters that I have prepared third or fourth circle, depending on the exact adventure that I that I had written that year. But like third or fourth circle, because it gives people good numbers and a little bit of a broader mix of abilities without getting into some of the more complex stuff that you enter into the journeyman tier, only because while I am going to get people who are familiar with the game, I am also going to get people who are new and I don't want to overload them with too much stuff to, to get a handle on. So that would perhaps be what, what I would recommend. I mean, if you want to go with something a little bit higher uh, on the 25th anniversary year of earth dawn, I specifically designed a special like two part silver anniversary adventure that harkened back to the one in the original it was like a sequel to the one in the original promotional flyers. Mm, yeah. And uh, kind of like followed up on that. And that I made the characters in that like sixth circle, I think. But yeah, Vasgothia would work. I don't have any ideas about what kind of adventure you might run. I have kind of just skimmed the Vasgothia book while working on the layout for it. Um, but I am not at all uh, uh, the person to consult at this point about what you might run into there. But yeah, that would perfect. That would be a perfectly serviceable area, I think, to run things in if you were, if you had a, an idea. Totally. 
Yeah. And, you know, hey, if you're on Discord, join the Facet Games Discord. I'm sure there are plenty of people that would be willing to offer their own advice and suggestions and maybe help you brainstorm a story or something like that. Yeah. It's a good about 24 cents worth of two cents editions. So two cent opinions. Uh, on to the next one uh, from Jen Corbett. Hi, guys. I've just discovered your podcast and I'm on episode 15. So she's got 120 odd to go. Uh, I have played first edition many years ago and very much enjoyed it. Now that it's my turn to serve as Game Master, I wanted to run an Earthon campaign. I have some of the first edition books on PDF, but your podcast makes me want to switch over to fourth edition. Yay us! Uh, As a single mom, my funds are limited. Can you please give me a list of the books that are really necessary to run a campaign? I really can't afford to buy all the materials and storybooks. Also, the X has all the hard copy materials, and retrieving those is not feasible. Thanks for the podcast. Thank you for your time. Jen. So Jen is probably not going to hear this when it comes out. I will reply directly to Jen's email to answer that. But this is a great question. Yes. If you are looking to get into fourth edition, ultimately, there are only two books that you need, and they are The Player's Guide and The Game Master's Guide. Those two books have everything in it that you need to run a game in fourth edition for a while. If you've got some first edition books in PDF, a lot of those are great, and a lot of them will have setting information. The Game Master's Guide will uh, has uh, like a setting chapter in it that provides some updated information as to where things stand in the 4th edition yeah. timeline framework of things. But you can easily use the 4th edition rules set in a sort of 1st edition pre-war timeline, pre-prelude to war timeline even, or, or something like that. Yeah, all the setting is still good. Yeah, all of the setting is still good, and like 90 to 95% of what is in the first edition books is completely and perfectly usable without needing to do any significant work or whatever. Retooling. So, Player's Guide, Game Master's Guide, that's it. If you are on a limited budget, pick those two up in PDF, and that would be the way to go. If you want to pick them up in print, that's great too, but, you know, PDFs are absolutely fine if you're on a budget. Splurge of Christmas time. Yeah, after that, I would say you probably don't need the companion unless there is stuff in there that you really want to have your players get access to early on. Nax is probably the the thing that, that would be most interesting to people early on. But those can always be added in later. Obviously, you've got the high circle stuff. That's not going to do a lot. It's got a lot of high circle uh, opposition creatures and and that sort of thing, which, uh, again, might not be super worthwhile, you know, early on if you're just starting a game. Yeah. So that's that's something to keep in mind. And then, you know, Mystic Paths is really, really cool. I'm really proud of the work that Morgan and and the entire team and freelancers and everybody did on that. But again, that most of the stuff in there is something that isn't going to be available until you reach journeyman circles. So you can hold off on that. Yeah. Same with quest stores. Like it's useful, but it's not required. Everything else is pretty much the setting books. So Iopos might be useful. Empty Thrones. If you want to run a story that is kind of like based in that then you can grab that. But again, that's an adventure collection, mm-hmm. adventure framework collection that is really kind of conceived as going to be more of a journeyman and up adventure collection. So yeah, again, budget, you've got some first edition books already. Grab the the player's guide, grab, grab the game master's guide, and then 
yeah. go from there. Step one. Step two, if you want to, Companion and uh, Mystic Paths. But other than that... Yeah, and then, like, other setting books, if you find them particularly interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's all it's all good. Yeah, no, those... yeah. Welcome Tigers. back. Absolutely. And tell us how it's going, by the way. We'd love to hear more from you and how uh, you're progressing through uh, adopting the role of Game Master. So, by all means. You know, if if you are not... Like, if you want to get some adventure inspiration... We just talked about them. The Legends of Barsave Adventures um, yeah. in PDF are like, like the individual chapters are like two bucks a piece. Yeah, pretty darn cheap. I've been running those for an online game that I've been doing. And because we aren't beholden to the four hour convention time slot, each of those chapters has actually been taking like two or three sessions to actually get through. Nice. So we have one session left. We actually kind of left on the cliffhanger in the middle of chapter eight. Um, and we'll be wrapping up actually, um, this coming weekend, we'll be nice. having, I think what is our final session. So yeah, but those are, those are really good as well. Well done. Uh, yes, Jen, welcome back. Love to hear more from you. So please keep us informed, uh, onto a very long, longer email from Stefan. Hi, Josh and Dan. Uh, we have been playing Earth on and off since the late nineties and started this year with the fourth edition, skipping two, three and such the system and world is incomparable and super cool. Attempts to try D&D again have been boring, with just sleeping mages and D20 lying around everywhere. I have three questions, a few audio suggestions for you, and some thoughts. Right now, it is the second time I'm running a group that consists of only two players. The first time it was a warrior and an archer. The current group consists of an obsidian nethermancer and a windling warrior. To them, I have set aside a dwarf owl and a young troubadour as NPCs. Nevertheless, this combination is special and could probably be only be surpassed by a group consisting of two troll cavalrymen with the goal of looting windling cares. As a player, my favorite character was a forced nethermancer traveling with a lizard elementalist, a drugged mage, and a supposed illusionist. Unfortunately, we were shot off our flying carpet by by an archer while fleeing. Nonetheless, I can highly recommend a pure magic group. The magic system of Earthon is just awesome, and you can get very creative with such a group without boring non-spellcasting adepts. Not to mention that you don't then have to babysit non-spellcasting adepts. You just need a patient GM. Otherwise, a fire arrow will come flying. The talent anticipate blow cannot be used with acrobatic defense. However, the maneuver and acrobatic defense talents do not have this limitation. This allows the character to incredibly boost their physical defense against an opponent. Is this also your understanding of the details of the talents? And if so, why is this explicitly not possible with Anticipate Blow? Okay, so the... Yes, okay. Sorry, start over. I need to parse that out. Fair. The talent Anticipate Blow cannot be used with Acrobatic Defense. However, the maneuver and Acrobatic Defense talents do not have this limitation. This allows the character to incredibly boost their physical defense against an opponent. Is this also your understanding of the talents? And if so, why is this explicitly not possible with Anticipate Blow? Okay, so here's the way that I see this. There is a difference a little bit between acrobatic defense and maneuver. The main difference between them is that acrobatic defense sort of is a general area effect, like you kind of boost your defense against all sorts of people, and maneuver it only works against a particular target that you designate. Yes, if you decide to use both, then it is possible that you could get a pretty hefty bonus to your physical defense as a result of that. 
there isn't anything, as far as I'm aware, in terms of the errata that does that same limitation. But the idea of it basically being that both of them are sort of defenses increased as a result of your movement. Acrobatic defense being one where you're kind of spinning and weaving and whatnot and maneuver doing the same thing. The reason, as I see it, that Anticipate Blow is not compatible with acrobatic defense is that visually, conceptually, Anticipate Blow requires you to be acting before your opponent so that you can sort of be watching what they are going to do in order to react to it. Mm -hmm. So from a particular point of view, those aren't really compatible. It is tough for you to be prepped and watching and ready to react if you are in fact just bobbing and weaving and spinning around. That's the way that I see it. And it also may be that the reason that they aren't compatible is that Anticipate Blow is a perception-based test against Mystic Defense, whereas Acrobatic Defense is a dexterity-based test against Physical Defense. So they aren't, like, you have to pick which method you are going to be using. There may be other reasons for it in terms of talent stacking and restrictions and whatnot that Morgan has in mind when it comes to developing the rules. That's the main reason that I see that restriction being in place where it isn't for maneuver and acrobatic defense. Yeah, because I see acrobatic defense as more of a, I'm going to bob, weave, and move around too fast for anyone to hit me. And that means anyone. And I see anticipate blow as the, I'm going to study my opponent and do the counterattack per se against that one opponent. And so it's, they, they thematically work differently for me as well. My two cents on the matter. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking a quick look through here. Air Sailors get both Acrobatic Defense and Maneuver as options. Um, Swordmaster gets Acrobatic Defense and gets Maneuver as a Discipline Talent. Okay. Hmm. And Warriors get both of them as Talent options. So... And I'm not looking at, at Anticipate Blow factoring in there either. Uh, Air Sailor, I think, gets Anticipate Blow as an option, possibly. As does Warrior and Swordmaster, I think, actually. Yeah. As, as options for all of them. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go essentially spending all of your option slots on defense boosting stuff... That's fine. It means you're not spending... There's an opportunity cost there if you are not spending those slots on getting offensive potential. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot more to say. I am not a super hardcore rules bit. There's a system mechanical reason why. But mm -hmm. from a stylistic standpoint, it's just that I see Anticipate Blow physically within the narrative space not being compatible with what you have to do for acrobatic, uh, acrobatic defense. defense. Yeah, I agree. I just don't see them being especially compatible in terms of how the character would physically be behaving. Mm -hmm. It's not simply a matter of, oh, I've got all of these mechanical widgets. Those mechanical widgets represent something within the narrative. And for me, there is a certain amount of verisimilitude, a certain amount of theme. Well, theme and visualization and stuff like that that goes along with that. I mean, 
you could sort of make the argument in a sense that is there really a need to have both maneuver and acrobatic defense because of some of the changes that have happened, like the difference between them and is maneuver, you know, basically is that maneuver only targets a single opponent, whereas acrobatic and provides a, an attack bonus. Acrobatic defense provides just defense bonuses, but does it against all sort of opponents within melee range. So there is a little bit of a difference between them, but, you know, I don't know. No, I think all of them have. I hope I've answered the question. I think you have. And I think that all three of them provide a different tactical position or advantage in any kind of a yeah. combat situation. Uh, I think acrobatic defense is meant for a group against you. So that way you're harder to hit. I think maneuver is to gain a tactical advantage. And I think anticipate blow is to do the countering at a certain time. So all three well, of them come into play, you know, anticipate blow and maneuver are very, very similar in yes. some respects yes. in that they both provide a defense bonus and a bonus to the first attack made after you successfully use it. Yeah. Um, it's just that one is perception versus mystic defense. The other is dexterity based versus physical defense. And so the one that you would use would depend on what sort of character build type, whatever that you are. Yeah. The downside being that anticipate blow does require you to be able to act before your opponent would. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a limitation there. Um, but again, that's because it fits the narrative space of you can't anticipate something that has already happened. Exactly. So I think this horse is redeaded. We should we should move on. Uh, <laughs> back to the email. Uh, can the windling warrior with astral sight see in the ethereal darkness orb of his nethermancer companion? We have come to the conclusion that his, this is possible since astral sight is not sight in the sense of perceiving electromagnetic waves as described in the episode on astral sight. Well, <laughs> I would be inclined to not allow it because that allows a low circle talent. Astral sight mm -hmm. is generally speaking, it's a it's a novice tier talent. Even if it's available to some people higher, it's a novice tier talent. And it feels a little bit cheap to allow it to overcome the limitation imposed by the spell because yeah. the spell exists in astral space as well. Ah, it is not just within physical space. And much like I, at least personally, I rule that illusions do a similar thing in astral space because as, as a spell that they to sort of reflect magically what they are doing in terms of their effects that you couldn't just use astral sight to go, Oh, that's an illusion. Astral sight in that case could act as a sensing test, and if you beat the appropriate number, then perhaps using astral sight you could get around it. But you couldn't just ethereal darkness. I'm going to flip on my astral sight and get around that. I think the the nature of the magic and the fact that spells exist in astral space as well would have that imposition affect astral sight as well. Even though it, it is not technically sight, it is still affecting the magical space. And so your senses would be overwhelmed still by that mystic field. Fair. All right. Dispel magic specifically excludes horror powers. Is this the advantage of suppressed curse where this is not excluded? Otherwise, I would appreciate more examples where suppressed curse can be used and dispel magic cannot. Yes, that is one example where Suppressed Curse is actually useful, where Dispel Magic is not. I think we might have talked about this back in 
whatever episode it was, probably the the first episode that we did on the wizard when mm-hmm. we were breaking down their talents because they get to spell magic very early on as a disciplined talent. Yeah. And we probably talked a little bit about the development of Dispel Magic, why we chose to make it a talent in 4th edition, where it was originally a spell in 1st, and Dispel Magic, the spell, was super useful and super powerful in how it could affect a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, Anything that had any kind of sustained duration, in theory, could be affected by Dispel Magic. Fair. You know, to the point that the wizard in my first long-term game had a spell matrix item that uh, was at, that he always had dispel magic prepped in it and would often when he needed to dump his desperate spell charm into the effect test of dispel magic in order to make sure that it happened. That's but the, the limitation on dispel magic was done in order to make suppress curse more useful because suppress curse absolutely can affect horror powers, creature powers, anything that is not effectively a a talent or a spell. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that Suppress Curse can do to mitigate negative effects on a character that Dispel Magic wouldn't be able to do anything about. Fair. Stefan has two more things. Please do a Kickstarter for audiobooks. I also already have an idea for two narrators that might be recruited for this, whose voices I and many others have learned to associate with Earthdawn for some time. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No comment. (laughs) I am lobbying hardcore. Look, I think it would be really cool to get a full audiobook versions. A full cast would be expensive. I know. But I know. I would love to see audiobook versions of the Earthdawn novels. Any and all of them. We have been talking internally about Earthdawn novels and stuff like that. No further comment. All I will say is stay tuned. It's an eventuality. We'll get there. I have one more request. Please make your wonderful podcast available via YouTube as well. That would greatly increase your reach. Quite a few prefer to listen to such formats via YouTube as well, not to mention that playlists are then also possible. Furthermore, mm-hmm. a transcript would be created on YouTube, which would be made searchable for us listeners via a, your website. Keep on doing the good work, and thanks a lot. Best regards from Vasgothia, Stefan. Yes, um, that is actually an idea that I have had for a while, is to take the episodes and whip up a background, basically, that could show on the the video while it is playing. That has largely not happened yet because of time and other commitments. It's one of those things that if I can find myself a little bit of time to whip things up. It's on the wish list of stuff to do. But yeah, that is a suggestion that has occurred to me before. And it's just a matter of finding the time to get it done. Yeah, he's not kidding. We talked about that. one. So yeah, on to a second email from Lehman. And this is kind of long, but it's, it's a good email to get to. He says, hello, Dan and Josh. I just wanted to thank you for the safety tools episode. It's something that, as you stated, gets overlooked or even looked down upon. I'm one of those older cishet males grognards who learned to roleplay in the 80s and questioned why something like this was was needed when playing make-believe. I wanted to state that everyone changes, and safety tools can apply to writers and developers as well. 
feel free to cut out the name of the game or whatever, but I don't want to, uh, this to seem like I'm trying to sell listeners on another system, but if you want to say that, it's, say it, that's fine too. I got the lucky break to write for another 1990s game, Torg, that came out with a new edition in 2017, Torg Eternity. I was brought on board in 2018 and started writing for a, re- a reality that invaded Earth composed of a mashup of Terminator, Hellraiser, and Mad Max that set up in old Soviet bloc countries as well as European Russia. A core book explaining all the realities came out in 2017, and we were doing source book for details. Before that, all released realities were for very heroic settings, a land of the lost realm, an Indiana Jones realm, a high fantasy realm. And then this horrible techno horror realm source book came out in 2019. We wrote up a a session zero guide for all the realms and possible concerns players may have. I wrote this on the techno horror realm Tharkold and focused on body horror, random mutations, slavery, and the like. But I also wanted to point out the history of the Soviet Union and the current, in 2018-2019 terms, situation in Ukraine, with multiple revolutions and Russian interference, might be a sensitive topic to those that connections to Ukraine, the Baltic states, etc. And that source book went well. Then, our next reality source book, Pan Pacifica, was set to write, develop, release in 2020. That, a book that had an infectious disease that caused a pandemic that started in Asia. The core book came out in 2015, so this was how the realm had been playing out for four or five years. Yes, it was a zombie apocalypse, but we stopped. We shifted the order of things and went without gothic horror realm, and at the same time looked into what we could do in our Pan Pacifica book to help. We had just kickstarted at the same time as the Great Bazaar with this realm. We brought in a cure, shifted the focus, and within the source book talked about how to modify things if needed. We added an insert on session zero, X cards, lines and veils, and aftercare. So, back in 2019, I was writing Blood on the Blasted Lands, an adventure set in the Eastern Europe, Russia, and Ukraine. Using my knowledge of the situation, friends in both countries, and visiting there a few times, I wrote a fake, air quotes, scenario, where the fictitious president of Russia gave a bunch of fake reasons to invade Ukraine, and one of the adventure's acts takes place in, the, in an occupied Kiev. Imagine my horror when February 24th happened. Every fictitious reason I gave was used by Putin to justify his invasion. I knew I was not in any way a cause for what happened, but it still struck me like a hammer. As I said, I have friends in both countries. I wrote a scenario using my knowledge and experiences there, and it almost happens for the same reason, and in a way, it feels like an homage became a betrayal. And, to add to that, one of the things I wrote in the Pan Pacifica book was a Taiwan destruction, and now there is that tension in real life. Sometimes I sit stunned, like the game I write for is in some strange Simpsons-esque thing where what we write happens in some way a couple of years down the line. I understand we write about an invaded Earth, so just knowing global situations can lead to this, but I never thought to this extent. The gist is that I wanted to point out that things can crop up to affect anyone, and game writers and developers can be affected as well. And if a game changes because of something in real life, I hope more and more people understand is that you might not care now, but in the future you might, and it might sneak up on you with no warning. Hey Josh, did I mention I'm a published adventure writer? I'm willing to work for tens of dollars, pennies per word. Lehman. Thank you, Lehman, for those very kind words and that excellent story. We've talked on the show about how some aspects of Earth Dawn can feel like a reflection or a metaphor or something like that for various real world issues. Like when we talk about slavery and orcs. And the struggle of Thrall versus the Theron Empire and imperialism and all this kind of stuff. The fascism of the Denerastus and Iopos. Yes. Yes, we play these games for 
escapism. Mm -hmm. We play them for entertainment, but we live in the world and ultimately we cannot help but have our experiences and our knowledge get reflected in the worlds and the settings and the stories that we create. It's why I often talk about when I'm kind of doing more general interviews, how important I think stories are and the types of stories that we tell ourselves and tell each other. Because those, in their own way, shape our brains. But yeah, thank you. Beautifully stated. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. That's a great story. Interesting bit of trivia. If you are not aware, I think, and he can correct me on this uh, if I am wrong, I think Lou got started in RPGs writing for Torg. Hmm. Yeah. I seem to recall him mentioning that that he was involved with Torg before he got uh, brought on for uh, Earth Dawn. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know whether that's his first stuff was with that, but but uh, Lou actually did um, write for Torg. So there is an even stronger kind of Earth Dawn connection there. I like that one. Yeah, that's I've cool. got the original Torg rule book and I don't know, one or two of the source books that I picked up like cheap at some point along the lines there. It, interesting little concept for a game. Yeah, totally. Uh, Limon, keep them coming. Love to hear more from you, man. Uh, last one. A couple of questions on this one. Hi, Dan. Hi, Josh. Question one. I want to make sure I understand how Life Circle of One plays. The spellcasting test is made when a horror entity tries to enter the circle, right? Yes. What if the entity tries to use a ranged power or ability to affect someone inside a circle without physically entering themselves? The power or ability or whatever will happen as normal. There is nothing about Life Circle of One that prevents ranged attacks or magical powers from crossing the barrier. If the test is successful, the entity both takes damage from an effect test and cannot enter? Correct. Also, if the spellcasting test fails and the entity is allowed to enter, are they free to move around inside the circle for the rest of the duration? Or would the Nethermancer get to make another spellcasting test next round to potentially expel them. Rules as written, once they've crossed the barrier, they're in and you've got to deal with it. I think it's kind of a cool narrative beat to perhaps have the Nethermancer keep trying and to try and expel the entity from outside of it. But really, by the rules, that's not how it's supposed to work. Okay. We have uh, column A and column B. If they are free to move around and cannot be expelled next round, does the circle still repel new entities trying to enter? Yes. Okay. Question two. Yeah, it is It is limited to repelling just, or attempting to repel just one entity per round. And so if one gets through, then, or it attempt, I forget the exact wording, I don't have it in front of me, but like yeah. it, I, it might only be able to attempt to repel one per round or something. Yeah. I mean, it's a first circle spell. There, is, there are limits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was a five part question one. Question two. What is the practical use for aspect of the cruel physician? Let me refresh myself on the details of that. Yeah, because that, that, that spell is not something I've come across any time recently, so. It's a Nethermancer spell. It's like sixth, fifth or sixth or seventh circle. Well, that would be why. I remember vaguely what it does, but I want to make sure I'm getting the right one. Fair. And all this aspect of the cruel physician. It's a fifth circle Nethermancer spell. The basic idea of what it does. Aspect of the Cruel Physician, it's a binding spell. So it summons a spirit to 
bind, bind to somebody who then performs field surgery on the victim, for lack of a better term. So the target is the person who is possessed by the spirit. They then operate on an individual. When they perform that field surgery, the person that they perform the surgery on takes a, suffers a wound. But they get a free recovery test with a plus six bonus, which is to say that what it does is it allows you to take a wound, not the damage yeah. equivalent to a wound, but to take a wound to make a free recovery test. That free is super important. No kidding. Because you don't have to spend a recovery test to power that test. A lot of the healing spells in the game provide bonuses to existing recovery tests, or you have to spend a recovery test in order to get the healing effect. That is a limited resource. Aspect of the Cruel Physician allows you to swap a wound yeah. in order to get a like a massive free heal yeah, in terms of raw back. damage. <laughs> yeah, that is the use of it. It is somewhat situational. It is dangerous. It is creepy, as a Nethermancer healing spell probably should be. Uh, totally. But the fact that it gives you a free recovery test with a bonus at a cost of a wound, it's pretty cool. Yeah, no kidding. Last one from Brendan. Question three, because we had one part five and then two, now three. How would you even begin to put a monetary value on a looted grimoire? I would look at the spells that are contained within it. My, my starting point would be look at the spells that are contained within it and the recommended price for the spells as listed in the player's guide, because there's a table in the player's guide for how much somebody would typically want to be paid in order to train the spell. And I would start there. That would sort of be the, the baseline. Fair if enough. they looted it and were trying to sell it, they probably would not get that full value. And if they were looking to actually buy a grimoire that had all of those spells in it, they might end up needing to pay a little bit more simply because that's how markets work. Capitalism and all. But also, it's possible that the grimoire could have more than just spells. It could have other valuable and useful information within it, because a grimoire frequently serves as a notebook slash magical journal, not just a repository of spells. But that's probably a good baseline, would be just look at the spells that it contains, and how much would it cost if somebody were to go and buy those spells based on the, the guidelines that are in the player's guide. Fair enough. Uh, that ends our quizzical portion of the show. Wow. I know. You want to just cut this one off and call it an email palooza? Why don't we do that? Because we are very nearly at an hour here. Yeah, this is this is a good time. I'll just cut this this little conversation out. Wait, no, no, that's fine. We we had a, a, a lot of emails come in. Because of vacations and stuff, we did yeah, yeah. like a bunch of episodes recording and then had time for people to get stuff in and whatnot. Totally. So we had a backlog. We, we had a backlog and some like long emails and some good questions and some good discussion. So absolutely. So that being said, folks, if you have any further things you want us to talk about or hear Josh pontificate on, because all of that is really good stuff, uh, please feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Jen, let us know how your game is going along, being the game master. Lehman, Keep them coming. Love everything you're contributing so far. Brendan, great questions. Um, Matthew as well. 
as you know, if we if we haven't not heard from you yet, please contact us. We'd love to do this more often. Seriously, this is the, my favorite part of the episode is just reading stuff off and letting Josh go go to town on the answers. <laughs> All right. Oh, um, quick addendum because I just found it. Uh, the spell learning cost information is on page two fifty one of the fourth edition player's guide. And the typical price for learning a spell is equal to the spell's circle times one hundred silver pieces. So that's what I would use as at least kind of a starting point for the spells that it contains. Add up the circles times 100. Yeah. That will give you at least a sort of ballpark figure to go by. But if it were just the book itself, you're probably not going to get that price because that spell learning is frequently also includes the magician who is sort of providing it to you, kind of teaching you the spell in the process. If you look right before that in the section on learning spells, it talks about how you get a bonus to learn the spell if you have the assistance of a teacher who already knows it. There you go. Until next time, folks, we actually do talk about the holders of trust, because that's next. Time for you to go ask questions of your own legend. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.